This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Dr. Heather M. Brown is Associate Professor of Education at the University of Alberta, Canada. Dr. Brown is an autistic professional who studies autism. She directs the Aiden Lab, whose aim is to uncover strategies to support the academic achievement and overall well-being of autistic children, youth, and adults. Dr. Brown will discuss neurodiversity and trauma. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for having me. Um, give me one second to share my screen. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to hear me speak today. It's quite an honor. Um, and I'm going to tell, start today by telling you a little bit, a story, a little bit about myself. So imagine it's the late 1970s and there's a village in rural Ontario that is so small that there's no traffic light. Now, all the women in this village have gathered at a small church, a short walk from home for a special brownie potluck dinner. Now imagine a little girl in a brownies uniform who is staring at a long line of potluck items spread before her and she chooses nothing. Because this little girl is unable to eat almost any of the foods that she is offered. She eats only Cheerios with milk for breakfast, toast and peanut butter for lunch and macaroni and cheese for supper. And she eats it every single day. Now imagine that the caring adults around her notice that the little brownie is eating nothing. So they say to her, don't you want to eat? But this little girl, who can't be more than five, has learned one lesson very well. There is something very wrong with her because she doesn't like to eat. She has seen and heard and endured endless battles to eat, endless trips to doctors and specialists, endless conversations about what is wrong with her? Why won't she eat? So when the likely well-meaning mother asks the little brownie why she isn't eating, the brownie instantly experiences intense shame. And that causes a spectacular meltdown. Because this little girl struggles to regulate through even the simplest of emotions. And shame is well beyond her ability to cope. So today, throughout this presentation, you're going to hear me say the term autistic person. This is because many autistics, but not all, believe that aut autism is inseparable from our identity. And so it makes more sense to say that I'm an autistic person in the same way that I would say I am Canadian. So my biggest living obstacle to living well is not my autism. It's my extremely fragile mental health. And my experience is not unique. Crib and colleagues in 2019 interviewed autistic adults and their families about the extent to which they felt being autistic impacted or affected their current and future lives. All agreed that co-occurring mental health conditions were the biggest obstacles to their futures with severe cases of anxiety and depression. 
Similarly, Swedish researchers examined the medical records of over 50,000 autistic people and found that we are seven to nine times more likely to engage in suicidal behaviors compared to non-autistic people. This is why Jim Sinclair wrote in 2002, there is a tragedy that comes with autism, not because of what we are, but because of the things that happen to us. In their book, Sensory Motor Psychotherapy, Interventions for Trauma and Attachment, Doctors Pat Ogden and Janina Fisher in 2015 define trauma as any experience that is stressful enough to leave us feeling helpless, frightened, overwhelmed, or profoundly unsafe. Like many autistics, I am primarily hypersensitive to sensory input which means that I've experienced many sensations as irritating, overwhelming, and stressful. Because my body seems to view so many sensory inputs as unpleasant and threatening, it goes into fight or flight with alarming regularity. The wonderfully horrible result, however, is that the stress that I experience due to sensation makes my nervous system even more sensitive to incoming stressors. This means that my nervous system is often in a state of hyperarousal and hypervigilance before anything else even happens. The crucial point is that the, a lot of the behaviors that are targeted, quote unquote, for treatment in autistic children would be considered normal reactions to extreme stress if our extreme stressors were easier for doctors, parents, teachers, and everyone else to understand. The HPA axis describes a complex feedback system of neurohormones that are sent between the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the adrenal glands, and of course, the different parts are constantly signaling each other. But as we know, prolonged stress over time and trauma actually modifies your HPA axis thresholds so that your system doesn't turn off as easily, or that it's hyperreactive to minor or non-existent threats. In other words, prolonged stress changes your brain chemistry to be one that is more easily prone to anxiety and depression, since the same chemicals and brain signals are involved. Wood and Gatto in 2010 proposed that the overabundance of autistic-specific stressors, like social confusion and bullying, social isolation and peer rejection, limited opportunities for employment, prevention or punishment of preferred behaviors or passionate interests, and sensory sensitivity to daily stimuli. All of these cause or engender a traumatic conditioning process in autistic youth. And one of the physiological consequences of early life adversity is that it alters allostasis, which is your body's ability to maintain stability through changes wrought by challenging environmental demands. Because having reduced allostasis means that you're less likely to be able to maintain equilibrium when you're faced with challenges, these physiological changes often lead to prolonged activation of the stress response. In other words, many autistics are experiencing what is known as toxic chronic stress every single day.
But to better understand why this happens to us, let's consider two key pillars of emotional well-being. The first, holding a positive identity, and the second, finding connection and belonging. When I reflect on my own experience, I realize that from a very young age, I internalized that I was bad, that I was overly sensitive and overly emotional, that my needs were unreasonable, that I was unlikable, that I wasn't normal, and as my mother loved to say, that I had to change. And these beliefs coupled with environmental stressors led to anxiety, panic attacks, shame, depression, meltdowns, and further trauma. In fact, my anxiety disorder became necessary for my survival because I had to become hyper-aware almost 100% of the time in order to successfully hide and suppress my natural autistic tendencies. Wherever I was, whether I was at home with my family, at school, or at work, I was required to quote-unquote mask my weird and attempt to pass as quote-unquote neurotypical or not autistic. I really love that quote that's on the screen. Paul Collins wrote, autists are the ultimate square pegs. And the problem with pounding a square peg into a round hole is not that the hammering is hard work, it's that you're destroying the peg. I believe the problem is that autistic people are taught that we are broken and that who we are naturally is not okay. The pathology paradigm has created stories of autism in which parents of autistic children and autistic people themselves are told that we are inherently inferior to non-autistic people, that autistics lack something fundamental to being human, right? We lack theory of mind or we lack empathy, and that autism is something to be fixed, cured, controlled, or avoided at any cost. And it's this type of thinking that leads families to believe that it's better to make their children drink bleach than it is to allow them to become autistic. Being told that there is something wrong with you is inherently disempowering. The constructivist principle states that what we believe about the world is constructed through our conversations or our stories about the world. In this way, what we know and what we create are interwoven. In essence, the stories that we choose to tell have the power to affect how we come to view ourselves and our circumstances. Thus, they are fateful. Under the pathology paradigm of autism, medical professionals are effectively going around and telling a population of people who are at much higher risk of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation that being autistic or neurodivergent means to be fundamentally flawed as a person. For people in positions of power and trust to imply that being neurodivergent means to be fundamentally flawed as a person and then to behave accordingly is a particularly bad way of teaching youth that they have value and worth. For we have long known that one of the central features of depression is a negative or undesirable feeling of difference or deviance from others. So in some of this short little section, 
Neurodivergent individuals commonly experience co-occurring mental health conditions, which are often the biggest obstacles to their futures. Autistic and other neurodivergent individuals may experience a traumatic conditioning process to specific stressors like social isolation, bullying, and limited employment opportunities. And the medical model or pathology story of autism has created stories that perpetuate the belief that being neurodivergent is means to be fundamentally flawed, which leads to disempowerment, negative feelings, and trauma. So I'm just going to take a short, tiny break to take a tiny glass of water and see if there are any questions. So give me one second. Thank you, Naomi, for your uh, comment. I agree 100%. I get that. Since I have ADHD as well, um, I know exactly what you mean when you sit in some of those talks. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a few seconds. Are there any other questions and comments before I go on from where I am? Okay, well, hearing nothing, please feel free to add things as we go along. So one of the big takeaways is that when disability is perceived as a weakness and not just as a different form of normal, it hinders social participation. Participation refers to how a person's life is interwoven with the social life of their family, friends, community, and society, and it includes feelings of belonging and engagement. As autistic children develop, they are often isolated and victimized, both by peers and adults, and with a devastating effect on our mental health. The medical profession's response to this fact has been to categorize and quantify the so-called social communication deficits of those on the spectrum, a perspective that legitimized the development of a host of interventions and evidence-based practices for remediating the perceived social deficits of autistic children. However, social skills classes are often disliked by many autistic people and may actually diminish authenticity by encouraging autistic people to camouflage their true feelings, beliefs, and behaviors to better align to neurotypical norms. So we all use camouflaging and masking strategies at times in an attempt to blend into our social surroundings. But for autistics, the goal is to present a more socially accepted version of ourselves by hiding our more obvious autistic traits and behaviors. In 1963, Goffman defined the process of concealment as the impact that unconscious, sorry, let me start again. Kaufman described the process of concealment as, and I quote, the impact that conscious and unconscious norms and societal expectations place upon stigmatized persons and the lengths that they go to conceal their otherness. For many autistics, camouflaging becomes a survival strategy and may actually reflect a traumatic, a traumatic response. Autistics who camouflage regularly may have internalized the stigma that their natural autistic tendencies are not acceptable ways to behave. 
For example, one participant in a recent study of mine described that there is often shame associated with stimming and displaying other obvious autistic traits. She said, it's embarrassing to see how people stare at us and you know they're commenting. Well, well, the causal patterns are not clear. Camouflaging may lead to in-the-moment feelings of inauthenticity, exhaustion, anxiety, and shame, as well as longer-term consequences such as identity confusion and mental health conditions like anxiety, depression, burnout, and suicidality. The hypervigilance associated with camouflaging can clearly be seen in this autistic participant's reflection. Camouflaging for her meant constant overthinking of possibilities of what to say and how it will come across and what others are and are not saying, the connotations of every word, sentence structure, emphasis, body language, as well as all of the above combined in a giant matrix of thought. It's it's little wonder that so many of us have co-occurring anxiety disorders. Many autistic advocates and proponents of the neurodiversity movement rightly suggest that autistics should not have to work so hard to pass as neurotypical in order to achieve success at home, work, or school. They advocate that autistics should be allowed to remain true to themselves. On the other hand, autistic youth and adults are often judged unfairly and or viewed as less than competent because we behave in ways that appear odd. As such, participants in our recent study actually viewed the ability to camouflage as a privilege because hiding certain thoughts, feelings, and emotions can help shield us from the negative perceptions of others. For example, one autistic adult said, I think camouflaging keeps me safe. It's kind of like a curtain, and it hides me from the prying eyes of people who are not as educated, are judgmental, or, as, or are not as informed about autism, or really anyone different. So perceiving disability as a weakness hinders social participation, as well as feelings of belonging and engagement. Camouflaging may be a survival strategy for autistics to present a socially acceptable version of themselves, but it often leads to internalized stigma, hypervigilance, anxiety disorders, and really unfair judgments. Autistic advocates suggest that autistics should not have to work so pass hard to pass as neurotypical, but nevertheless, some viewed camouflaging as a privilege that shields us from unwanted perceptions. So is there any questions about that little brief overview of camouflaging and some of the deficits or problems when we perceive autism from such a deficit-based lens? I have a couple questions for you, Dr. Brown. Great. Um, first, uh, first, I've found that sometimes parents who are struggling uh, with their parenting role and and struggling in life and feeling unsupported can view acceptance as criticism if they're if they're not feel if they're feeling not accepting in their own hearts that they're feeling um that that they feel like 
those messages are criticisms of them. How can you help parents who are struggling like that um, to hear the message and feel supported themselves? So help me understand what at what part of of this makes them feel criticized? Uh, because if they if they don't feel like they have it in them to feel accepting, because for example, they they're resistant are sleep, to accepting it, right? Because because they're sleep deprived, because yes. they've been hit, because they're yes. afraid, because yes. they are facing social stigma, yes. and, and therefore are not um feeling accepting yeah uh and then people say you should accept because you're hurting your kid it just feels like piling on to the parent yeah i think that's very similar to how i feel whenever i get really really anxious or really really depressed it's almost like you know you're supposed to be thinking certain thoughts you know you're supposed to anyway i'm getting myself in a tangle let me just refocus What I that's a really hard question. I certainly wouldn't want parents to think that when I tell them that they need to accept their children child's autism, that it means that their child can't learn or that they can't grow. I have a cousin right now who I've been supporting because although he's older than me, he's he's really struggling with mental health issues. And he struggles with this a lot because he's been doing something called radical acceptance in, in his various therapies. And he's like, how, how do I do radical accept? How do I accept that I can never do certain things? And it's not that you can never do certain things. It's not that you're saying that the autism is 100% good and it's going to, and you just need to perceive it positively. It's more like, can you get to know both the strengths that the autism gives your child as well as mindfully acknowledge the weaknesses? Because if you're mindfully acknowledging the weaknesses, then you can you can make strategies, right? Like I mindfully acknowledge that my ADHD and my forgetfulness gets me in a lot of trouble. So I have to radically accept that that's true and then put in a whole bunch of strategies to ensure that I can function as well as I can. So it's always both. And I think people really struggle that acceptance doesn't mean that you're going to leave everything the way it is or that you're not going to try or that there isn't things that you can learn. It just means that this is the child that I have in front of me. And I love that child both for their strengths <laughs> and those challenges that are really causing me a lot of difficulty in them. Does that answer the question? I think that's very helpful. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. And and I had a, a second question, which is about um, camouflaging in medical settings, about yes. um, about people being afraid to disclose in uh, to their doctors uh, mm -hmm. because we have shown statistically that people do that that they yes. that they feel that they're going to get inferior care and so they yes. don't tell their doctors and then their doctors may not may really not understand and and they they may assume that people have the ability to follow through on the the healthcare plan when they don't or um right or, you know, not ask about the struggles and so get them the supports they need. So um, what can we do 
to to signal to patients that it's safe and to actually make it safe? Yeah, that's a really big question. And I certainly see that along among many autistic people. They really, I think it's around this sort of this idea of it's a very I there's a sort of uh research term, and I'm using it in the very disability studies way, where they call it like mad studies. And it's really looking at those people that have, you know, mental health conditions and their experiences. And I think what happens to a lot of us with mental health conditions is that often once we tell doctors that we have ADHD or whatever, they make certain assumptions about who we are, and then that changes their recommendations, right? It changes you know, whether or not they take me seriously, whether or not they think that I can do X, Y, or Z, whether or not they'll connect me to certain services. So one second. I think, sorry, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm going to, I'm going to mute myself so I can clear my throat without hurting anyone's ears. Oh, maybe. There we go. Sorry. Got a frog in my throat. And that was terrible for everyone. I apologize. Anyway, um, the question was, how do you make patients feel safe? Well, a lot of ways that you can make patients feel safe is by just encouraging vulnerability in yourself. Like if a patient seems to be struggling with something, normalize that it's okay to be struggling with that thing, right? Like normalize that you struggle with forgetting things or normalize you struggle with certain things. And just having that shared space. I think what's really hard is many medical doctors they had, they had to have it together. They know how to do this, right? You couldn't get through medical school if you didn't have it together, right? You know how to push through, you know how to overcome your anxiety, you know how to do all these things. And so it feels like you're a different person, right? Like you're almost like a different species and that's very intimidating. But if you can say to yourself, you can say to us, hey, I struggle too. I you know, forget things too, then it normalizes it. And you're much more likely to get this, to get the real story behind what's going on. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank Um, you. You're welcome. And there's a whole bunch of questions coming in now, which, but I'll do the next section and then we'll ask, answer more. Do you think that's a good idea to do it? Sounds good. Okay, perfect. So what can we do? Given all this, how might we best prevent trauma among neurodivergent youth? So first, too many so-called interventions for autistic and other neurodivergent children, interventions like forcing eye contact or saying no stimming or quiet hands, all of these are often prioritized for the comfort of neurotypical people around us and often at the expense of our own well-being. So if we want to stop traumatizing autistic and other neurodivergent youth, then the neuromajority must start to adapt and change their behaviors and attitudes to better accept and include neurodivergent people, rather than putting the burden of change solely upon us. Second, we must work to promote community acceptance of neurodivergence by changing our story to a neuroaffirming, strength-based approach. Strength-based approaches present a balanced picture by also emphasizing our contribution and capabilities, 
rather than only solely emphasizing our deficits and our perceived burden. So let me give you a really good example. I recently read an article on the effectiveness of dialectical behavior therapy that was published in 2020 in a journal called BMJ Psychiatry. The story of autism that was told by these researchers was that, and that people with autism, and this is a direct quote, have problems with emotional dysregulation, have major problems in interpersonal relationships, have identity disturbance, have recurrent suicidal behavior, have chronic feelings of emptiness, have inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, have transient stress-related paranoid ideation, and last, but certainly not least, we have the inability to inhibit various urges, impulses, behaviors, or desires. Really? I am sorry, but that kind of pathologizing language makes me really mad. So clearly, I am proving the authors correct. But consider for one moment how it must feel to know that you have aut- to not to feel, to know you have autism, and not only hear that definition but truly believe that that is what autism is. Overly deficit-based stories of neurodivergent lead to harm for autistic individuals and their families and can lead parents to frantically try to fix their broken child. Equally important, the medical model's story of autism places the cause of our difficulties with communication and social interaction as residing solely within autistic people themselves, without ever questioning why non-autistic people often struggle to understand the meaning behind our social behaviors. This paradox, well-documented in the literature and referred to as the double empathy problem, suggests that the social isolation, discrimination, and exclusion of autistic people are often caused by two-way misunderstandings of autistic and non-autistic social norms. That is why one participant with autism in a social skills training intervention said, if it takes this much effort to assist someone with autism in interacting with neurotypicals, then where does the assumption that a neurotypical can understand and interact with someone with autism so easily come from? Silly thing won't switch. Now let me tell you a more balanced and strength-based story of autism that was based on the work of two autistic advocates, Dr. Scott Robinson in 2010 and my friend and colleague, Dr. T.C. Weissman in 2021. Autistic people are viewed under the neurodiversity model as individuals who possess a blend of cognitive strengths and weaknesses across three main domains, language, communication, and social interaction, sensory processing and motor skills, as well as executive functioning and self-regulation. Autism is referred to as a constellation because autistic people can very widely vary on these and other dimensions, and the patterns of strengths and challenges experienced by two autistic people may be quite different. I would imagine that even for the non-autistic people in the audience, this second definition was much easier to hear than the first. 
Autistic people desire to be seen as having positive attributes, strengths, and agency beyond a disorder or disability. A strength-based approach is not about describing a young person's learning and development in a solely positive light, nor is it about neglecting to identify areas of concern. However, to reduce stigma associated with autism and other forms of neurodiversity, we must normalize neurodivergent ways of being and affirm neurodivergent people as valued and diverse community members. The common autistic strengths that are listed on the screen came from a study from Copen Remington in 2021, where they interviewed autistic people and their employers about the top most common autistic strengths. And these are just some of the many strengths that many people with autism have. Third, we must remember that fitting in and belonging are two very different things. Fitting in requires changing who you need in order to be accepted. Belonging means that you're accepted just as you are. Clinicians and service providers can ensure neurodivergent people are not coerced into learning social skills for the sake of the neuromajority with whom we interact. At the same time, we can all support those neurodivergent people who may be genuinely motivated to learn how to quote unquote speak neurotypical to achieve various self-chosen outcomes like learning how to be a more effective communicator in a workplace that's going to be dominated by the neuromajority. Well-being is not simply the absence of negative function, but rather it's something more. Similarly, a lack of negative affect, depression, loneliness, insecurity, and illness is not the same thing as the presence of positive affect, happiness, social connection, trust, and wellness. Seligman's PERMA model suggests that there's five pillars to human flourishing. Positive emotions, or a subjective sense of well-being. Engagement, which refers to Cheek Senkmehai's notion of flow, or intense concentration, absorption, and focus. Positive relationships. Meaning, which refers to having a sense that one's life has direction, purpose, and value, and accomplishment, which is similar to Ryan and DC's self-determination theory, which states that a feeling of competence or working to achieve mastery is a core basic human need. If we want to support the healthy development of neurodivergent youth, the basic task is to understand what kinds of things, events, feelings, activities, or pursuits, persons, and so on, make a positive contribution to their lives. Barbara Frederick's Broaden and Build Theory of Positive Emotion suggests that positive emotion broadens and builds our psychological resources so that we can draw on them in tough and challenging situations. In other words, positive emotion does much more than just feel pleasant. It is a neon sign that growth is underway and that psychological capital is building. So Seligman's PERMA model, as I just described, emphasizes the importance of positive relationships for human flourishing. 
But this model and others like it were developed to describe and promote well-being among the neuro majority without considering how these definitions of idealized personhood might look different for neurodivergent people. For example, a strong sense of connection with others in the community might be operationalized differently among autistic people in that we may prioritize the development of a few close friendships over having a really large social network. A second striking example is the intimate connections with animals that autistic youth often view as genuine friendship or even as exceeding some of their human relationships. And yes, those are both me. <laughs> Non-judgmental, sensitive, and always available for comfort and support, animals help neurodivergent individuals cope with stress, provide companionship, and, sh and share a sense of unconditional acceptance. However, despite the harmful stereotypes that suggest autistic people have no interest in developing social relationships, most autistic people do want friends, romantic partners, and other social connections. For example, Lamb and colleagues recently reported that autistic young adults in their study offered rich descriptions of their positive well-being, reflecting their unique individual differences and a strong sense of connection with others in the community. Thus, the authors said that the overarching theme of their study was that autistics are different but connected. My mom and dad uh, got a bunch of family pictures done, and that is uh, the most recent picture I have of my family, who are all in Ontario and very far away from me. To facilitate belonging and connection, we must create inclusive, neuroaffirming spaces in which members can be surrounded and connected to a like-minded social network of neurodivergent friends and peers. Members of such groups often feel great kinship for one another, and neurodivergent groups provide opportunities for us to make meaningful friendships without also needing us to mask or normalize our odd behaviors. These safe spaces also empower its members to develop and practice self-advocacy skills. That is, they create opportunities for neurodivergent individuals to share their perspectives and have them validated, listen to others and be listened to, as well as make their own decisions and choices, including being able to make mistakes and then being able to learn from them. Neurodivergent people also need to learn about the lies of other neurodivergent individuals who nonetheless became extraordinarily successful in their chosen careers. A positive role model is someone who others want to emulate, imitate, and follow. A role model is not a molder of clay, exactly, but someone who others turn to for a source of inspiration. Having role models who are neurodivergent can help individuals feel seen and understood. Seeing someone like themselves succeeding can provide inspiration and motivation for them to pursue their own goals and aspirations. Role models can also help normalize neurodiversity, which can reduce stigma and discrimination. By learning about successful individuals who are neurodivergent, youth can come to understand that being different is not something to be ashamed of, and that neurodiversity often leads to great strengths. 
Role models also help neurodivergent people to develop a positive image, self-confidence, and self-esteem. Neurodivergent role models in neuroaffirming spaces can also provide valuable support and guidance to neurodivergent individuals. In such spaces, they can share their experiences and offer advice on how to navigate challenges, providing a sense of community and belonging. For the past two years, I've been co-facilitating a group called OtGems, which is a local advocacy group dedicated to improving the workplace experiences for women and non-binary autistic adults. When asked to describe what the members gained from our group, one autistic adult reported, I went from like spending my entire life trying to figure out why I wasn't fitting in or why I couldn't do anything. And then suddenly I'm part of this group and I'm like fitting in. Another said, the group is really supportive. And whenever somebody is struggling, like people come together and it ends up being a community. Finally, positive role models play an important role for in neurodivergent individuals as such role models expose us to different talents and possibilities. For a long time, I believed that I would not be able to benefit from meditation because I had autism and ADHD until I came across a meditation teacher named Jeff Warren. Jeff Warren is a Canadian meditation teacher and, the, and a co-founder of the Center for Applied Mindfulness and Meditation, i.e. the Calm app. He also co-authored the book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which helps to make meditation accessible for those who may struggle with the traditional techniques. And last but not least, he has ADHD and bipolar disorder. Discovering that it was possible for someone with ADHD to learn to meditate gave me, an gave me the inspiration to try it myself, and the outcome was a significant improvement in my overall well-being. Fourth, we need to use strength-based approaches to support neurodivergent people. In strength-based education, it begins with educators discovering, discovering what their students do best. And then teachers help students to use their strengths while learning new or difficult things so that they can reach previously unattained levels of personal excellence. According to the Benson and Scales model of well-being, people who thrive tend to have a spark or maybe several sparks. A spark is a passion for a self-identified interest, skill, or capacity that metaphorically lights a fire in a person's life, providing energy, joy, purpose, and direction. Being focused intensely or passionately on a particular subject or activity is considered a defining feature of autism. And as many as 95% of autistic people have intense or passionate interests. Our passionate interests offer opportunities for learning, and they can be used to introduce novel skills and activities. But to punish a neurodivergent person by removing or severely limiting our access to our passionate interests is, in essence, to strip us of a large source of comfort, soothing, and strength. Instead, a best practice is to merge our special or passionate interest areas into with whatever we're learning at school or at work. In fact, doing so may be one of the only ways for us to demonstrate our true levels of ability. 
For example, Dr. Wood in 2021 showed that there were many educational advantages to using strengths at school. These included improved access to learning curriculum and tests, greater task completion, more communication, more socialization, more independence, intrinsic enjoyment of the activity, source of comfort, and the development of expertise. So, to prevent trauma among neurodivergent youth, the neuromajority must adapt and change their behavior and attitudes to better accept and include neurodivergent people, rather than putting the burden of change solely on them. A strength-based approach that affirms neurodivergent people as valued members of the community is necessary to prevent trauma and reduce stigma. Belonging is more important than fitting in. Creating inclusive, neuroaffirming spaces provides neurodivergent youth opportunities for meaningful friendships without needing them to mask or normalize their odd behaviors. Positive role models and strength-based approaches that incorporate passionate interests can help individuals with neurodivergence thrive and to reach their potential. And to support the healthy development of all neurodivergent youth, we need to understand what makes a positive contribution to their lives. In conclusion, valuing neurodiversity means that you understand that those who are wired differently from what is considered the norm are not bad or disabled and don't need fixing. They are merely different. To help autistic and other neurodivergent individuals to thrive, we must work hard to increase each child's confidence in themselves by conveying to them that they are good enough as they are right now, not as they might someday be in the future. The more that we believe in the child's strengths, the more that we can see the good in them as they are, the more that they will grow up believing that they have value and worth. Thank you. Dr. Brown, thank you so very much for an amazing presentation. Um, and, you know, as I was listening, you know, I was thinking back to one of your earlier slides about not trying to force a round peg into a square hole. Uh, and as one potential solution, um, maybe we need to figure out a universal hole so that all pegs will fit. Yeah, that's, I mean, certainly universal design, uh, right? Like. You can't keep, you need to change the system, not try to change the peg to fit through the hole, right? What I'd like to do then is to actually go to some questions. And and so um, the audience has the ability to vote up um, questions. I'm going to go with the ones with the most uh, thumbs up. Uh, so the first question, outstanding, important presentation. Thank you. In clinical settings where access to services often hinge on fitting within a deficit model, so that's the medical model, do you have any advice about how we as professionals can infuse more strength-based approaches and attitudes into our very deficit diagnostic settings? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am an educational psych, like psychoeducational researcher. So I do like standardized achievement tests and I look at an intelligence tests, right? Like that's clearly a deficit-based model. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what do I do? Like, how do I fix this problem that's inherent into the way that research works, right? So this is my only solution. And I don't know if it's a great one. So my solution that I've done, at least in my research, is I make sure that I write as much about their strengths as I write about their weakness. It's not that you, like we all have those little strengths box, even like on an IEP, they have that little strengths box, right? But most people put one sentence or they say so-and-so likes such and such, right? Like they don't put any energy into it. But if I design measures and I have, like I've created these strength-based measures and they're autistic quality of life measures, there's all these different types of measures. I can administer them in the same way that I administer my more deficit-based. And then the story that I ultimately tell about that individual will be much more balanced. And I think that's the only thing you need to do is you need to talk about this more balanced version. The other thing is it really hinges around whether you say something is a weakness or a deficit, or if you say it's a difference, right? Like it is a fact that my working memory works differently than other people's working memory. There's no getting around that fact, but it's only a problem when you say it's a weakness, right? Like we don't say that humans are broken because we can't fly. We just created a world where we don't need to, right? And so if everyone's working memory worked like mine, the entire world would be organized around that fact. Well, I lucked out. (laughs) It isn't organized for me. And so the most thing that we can do is be respectful and not necessarily say that we're broken, if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. And, um, and, And I think what you've raised is that words matter that we often unconsciously will use words that are very hurtful. And so we need to change that. Um, and that means changing our attitudes and our uh, unconscious biases. Yes, absolutely. So absolutely. I have, oh, go ahead. No, no, go okay. ahead. So um, I think I have another question. Um, Dr. Brown, thank you for this excellent talk. Uh, related to Dr. Kripke's question, what can healthcare professionals do to prevent trauma caused when our colleagues express outdated ideas about autism, such as that autistic people lack empathy or deny the autistic identity of children who do not fit a historical stereotype? Um, and, and I might add to that and say, you know, I often am wondering if I'm doing the exactly wrong thing by referring uh, patients to ABA therapy that that is ma- I'm making things worse and not better. Right. So yeah, it's that's really hard. I mean, it's a really 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 hard question. I mean, I think that I think that the most that we can do because we can't necessarily change those healthcare professionals. We can't necessarily advocate like it if your child needs I heard this in a presentation the other day a parent was saying I'm really poor and I am from a marginalized racial background I don't have a choice I have to accept ABA so how can you tell me that that's wrong I need some kind of support right ABA in and of itself isn't the problem. ABA is merely a way to learn. It's a way to help kids learn. It's the way that ABA gets used. It's the story that you tell to the parents about why they need to have the ABA. 
It's the story you tell the child about their behavior. That's what actually causes the trauma, not any form of intervention in and of itself, if that makes any sense. Um, so let me give you a really good example of what I mean. So I have something that's called conversational overlapping, but what it really means or what it looks like is my sort of impulsive ADHD nature means that if I'm having a conversation with someone that I'm really enjoying, I might interrupt with, well, I might, I always interrupt the person and then I say, oh, that reminds me of blah, blah, blah. And then that comes out and then we go back to the other person, right? Now, most people look at that behavior and they say, well, she's being rude. She's being egocentric. She only cares about herself, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can say that story about that behavior, or you could say that this psycholinguist named Barbara Tannen, she developed this principle called conversational overlapping. What it really means is the person is saying, I am so interested in what you're saying. I understand or relate to what you're saying so much that I need to show it to you with this sort of verbal blah, blah, and then I'm going to let you keep going right? Like that's a very different story for the exact same behavior. So it's not that I don't need to learn that my interrupting might be perceived negatively. Of course I need to learn it. But so does everyone else need to learn that it's not my intention to be rude, right? Like it's this two-way misunderstanding of our social norms that's causing the problem. So if you're an autistic child who needs ABA therapy because they, they're struggling to learn things that, that other kids can learn easily, of course I want them to have that support. But I also don't want the therapist going in and saying, you must comply, you must sit on your hands, you must not do these things, you must do what I say, because you're so broken that you need to learn these things, if that sort of framing makes sense. Yes, and as I was, as you were saying this, I also realized that not a, all ABA therapy is the same. Because no. I've had patients come back and tell me that they love their therapist. Exactly. It's about the relationship, like, right? There are good ABA therapists. There are terrible ones. What makes an ABA te therapist terrible is when they're being very compliance-based, when they're requiring the child to comply, when they're not making a relationship or a bond. If they're, if they're acting like that child is a burden, that's what causes trauma, not the fact that the child needed any kind of support, if that makes sense. There are also many different approaches to helping children, but we have allowed the ABA industry to get the funding. If we, if we had um, the same level of parent support and respite that came yes. with, um, that came with communication interventions, that came with other kinds of, of, um, community integration interventions, yes. uh, other other kinds of interventions that would really help people if they came with the same level of practical support. Yes. And um, then people might would have options other approaches. Right. Um, and another one, too, is we've seen a lot of success with anti stigma pro programs where we train the peers. Right. We why are we always intervening on the social skills of neurodivergent kids? Because if we go in and intervene with the peers so that the peers are more accepting and the peers aren't bullying, then the need for intervention for the autistic kid is going to go way down. Right. Like 
we need to look much more broadly at what is going on there. You can do therapy on me for the rest of my life, but if my environment sucks every single day for the rest of my life, I'm going to be miserable, right? Like it has to always be both. It always has to be a balance. And what you're really looking for is a place where you feel like you belong and that you feel value, that somebody wants you in that space. That's what you're looking for. And so one of the uh, uh, audience uh, may have addressed uh, your answer with this question, but um, just um, I just want to read this because it was uh, ranked high. How do we address social education about neurodivergence for non-neurodivergent neurotypical children on a mass level? Oh, exactly. Instead of putting the burden of education on those who are neurodivergent. So one of the uh, researchers at my school, her name is Dr. Sandy Thompson Hodgetts. She's in occupational therapy. She's been working on this exact problem for the last three years where they, she's basically running an intervention where she goes into camps, like summer school camps, and she would have like one autistic kid, but she would then intervene with their peers. And it was a really, really short intervention. Like, I think she said it was like 10 minutes, but essentially explaining, you know, this is autism. These are the types of behaviors you might see. This is what they mean. This is what you should do. It's not that they... It's just sort of giving the kids that understanding. And the, the, the kids that were in the intervention, their, um, their engagement with their peers went way up, right? Like one of the things that's hardest about our uh, social skills is that they're unexpected to you. Like neurotypicals expect us to act in different ways in the same way that if you're an immigrant and you come to our country, we might get really confused at some of the ways that you're acting. It's like a cult, an acculturation. And it's that sense of, of uh, surprise that causes the person to reject us, not necessarily that there was anything wrong with the behavior to begin with. So there's so much that we can do to make our lives better without ever intervening with us ourselves. Thank you so much. And you should be aware that there's a lot of uh, uh, not questions, but just gratitude. A lot of thank yous for your presentation and people talking about how they would like to um, uh, inform others uh, about what they've learned from you today. Um, That's wonderful. And I I have a couple other questions, but um, Clarissa, whenever you want, please also um, interrupt me. Um, so um, one question is, in terms of how to change the conversation, mm-hmm. healthcare professionals are supposed to be scientists. And <laughs> historically, science has adapted and models have changed based on new information or inclusion of more different perspectives. Mm-hmm. What was the question, though? I missed it somehow. Um, I think it's a comment. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. We are scientists. And and I don't have a problem with that. I don't. It's just about the meaning that you give to the differences, right? It's not that I I want us to stop doing science or that I don't think that you can, you know, that we shouldn't reliably differentiate between an autistic kid and a non-autistic kid, right? Like that has meaning and value. It's really, though, the story that we give to that meaning that, that we need to be much more careful of and much more respectful around. Another comment, thank you for the presentation and affirming the need to see the whole person, not the problem. I've seen in recent years that the state of California has moved towards supporting ABA therapists and away from psychologists providing behavioral support. This results is a more 
this results in a more behavior problem focus and less at looking at the whole person, taking into account mental health and trauma relating to behavior. Yeah, that's that's disappointing, isn't it? I assume it's a cost-cutting measure. I don't know that, but I assume that that's what they're doing. I know psychologists tend to be very expensive. Um, I know that one thing that I've been really encouraged by is we're seeing a lot of positives when you have an autistic interventionist. So whether so like having an autistic peer that's older than you, having a teenager, having a young adult be the ABA therapist or be the interventionist, that has a huge impact on the child's life, right? Because here's an adult uh, or, or an older person who they might look up to, who's very similar to them, that has the same kind of challenges, but yet that person is saying, you can learn this, you can do this, you will be able to understand this. The other, and that can be really powerful for the young person. I also know that we're all we're often really good at helping families understand. I'm shocked at how many families will come up to me and say, when they see me, like I sit on various boards, say at the Center for Autism, and then I'll be on the board and I'll be at their AGM and parents will come up. And basically, they'll say, so my, my son or daughter is doing XYZ. And I'll say, oh, of course, your son or daughter is doing XYZ. I do that all the time. This is what it means, right? Like having someone say, no big deal. That's normal, right? Well, that's to be expected. So don't worry about it. This is why they're doing it. If it's a problematic behavior, this is why they're doing it. So let's find a reason, another behavior that will replace that need, right? Like that's the key, right? Like we, if I have a need to do something and that something is hurting me, then our goal is to try and figure out, well, what can I do that would be similar to meet that need that isn't hurtful? And often autistic people are really good at figuring that out. And so that would be one recommendation that if you are having to, you know, do that type of intervention and needing, and trust me, I did, I had PS, I didn't do ABA necessarily, but I had PSW workers because my son was so difficult when he was little. It was so much work, right? I want parents to feel supported because obviously they're trying their best, but sometimes having that autistic person there can be a great almost interpreter to help everyone understand what's going on. Wow. Sorry, that was a bit long-winded. No, 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 but I was thinking, I think you, the, the two themes that you're commenting on, I think one is inclusion. Mm -hmm. so, so really not just looking for peers, but making sure that our peers are diverse. Yes. Um, and that's in the education world as well as the health healthcare world, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other that you're commenting is on role models uh, and that's just so important and helpful and affirming um, to have diverse role models. It is. It really is. And, you know, it, it makes us I've had many people say, well, if Heather can do it, I guess I can, too right? Like, it, it's that social validity thing. It's a, one of those persuasion techniques, right? Like, if, if I feel that you're very, very different from me, and I'll never be able to do what you're asking me to do, well, then it's easy for me to just reject your advice. But if I'm listening to an autistic person who says, well, I can do this hard thing. And yes, I did overcome it in these ways. Well, then I feel like, okay, well, maybe I should try it too, right? So it's just got a lot of power behind it to make positive change. On on that note, I one of the criticisms of the neurodiversity movement 
mm-hmm. is to say, well, there's a good autism and a bad autism. There's there's people who are um, who clearly have disabilities. My daughter Me needs too. care for all activities of daily living. Doesn't use speech to communicate. There, there's no question she has a disability and needs many supports. She's also a very strong neurodiversity advocate. Um, but there is a common theme that the role models you when you put those role models up on the screen I didn't see a role model for for example my daughter um, Mm -hmm. uh, up there but she does have role models they just weren't up on your screen I'm Um, sorry maybe you should tell me later what they are so I can add them next time yeah um, uh, yeah we can talk about that but but a common you know, a common criticism is, uh, you know, that's fine for you. You're a doctor, you speak, you, you know, know. Um, so know. How, how do you, how do you respond to that? And, and does this apply? Um, do these principles apply to people who, um, who yeah. have really significant needs? I know. Yeah. So um, It's a really complicated question and we would have, so I probably can't do it justice, but I will do my very, very best. So one thing I will say is that um, how well I do at any given moment is highly variable. And so there have been times where I have been non-speaking. There have been times so uh, what I mean by that is I was in an accident and following the, ac- the the stress of the accident was so intense that I'm unable to speak. Or if I'm so depressed and I go in a really, really bad panic attack when I'm really, really depressed, then I won't be able to speak. And so some of the argument is that, yes, Heather's a doctor and Heather is standing up here before you, but she, that is not all that she is. Her, her ability to cope is highly dependent on her environment. And so you can't just slap a label on her that she's quote unquote better than other autistic people because it's so variable. And that's the way it is for all of us. I, I think often we don't understand the strengths of people who have high support needs. Um, and we don't, and and because we don't understand their strengths and give them labels, uh, and um, then you know we don't work on developing their strengths. We don't give them access to communication, and exactly. and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Exactly right. Exactly, and you know, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that I understand the experience who ha- of a person who has autism plus a severe intellectual disability. I don't. I never will. But it doesn't mean that I want those individuals to be pathologized because there's lots of examples where people who are non-speaking understand everything that's going on around them, understand everything that you're saying. And, and you're absolutely right. If, if you have a story that this child is so impaired that they will never learn, well, yeah, they're not going to learn. But if you have a different story where you, where you see both the challenges but some of the strengths, then just like you're saying, then you've got something that you're working towards. Then you've got a different picture and a different plan. One of my favorite um, examples of this principle was there was some famous, famous runner, um, and I don't know, remember his name at this exact moment, but he was a famous runner who was who was destined to break the four-minute mile. Everyone said that he was the one most likely to do it. He had the most chance of doing it, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he failed, and he failed, and he failed, and he apparently reported saying that he didn't think anyone would be able to break the four-minute mile. And then his competitor broke it. 
And then one week later, he broke it, right? Like it was just the fact that he now knew it was possible that he was able to break through the barrier. And I mean, what better story do you need than that one to, to understand why we have to look at the strengths so that we allow people to, to see a possibility that they can reach for? So th th thank you so much for answering all these questions. And may maybe we're going to wrap up soon with maybe one or two more questions, if that would be OK. Absolutely. Um, OK, so um, so the question I'm going to uh, so this is one. So and, and maybe segues into what you were just about to talk about, which is taking into account that some neurodivergent autistic persons may also be challenged by intellectual or cognitive impairments such that insight-oriented or typical talk narrative therapy models will not serve well. Do you know of any intervention models that help neurodivergent persons recover from traumatic experiences? And there's a second question. Have you come across any studies on the use of alternative therapies or somatic approaches to recover from trauma? Unfortunately, I don't feel I'm really very well capable to answer this question very well, but I'll try my very best. But I want to just make it very clear that I this is only, I haven't looked at the research carefully, so I can't totally answer the question. So um, I've done a lot of work looking at um, I've done a lot of work and that's where I'm going to stop. No, I'm joking. So I think I work a lot with this idea is the problem. I work a lot with this idea, but I'm not entirely certain how it's going to translate into people with who also have intellectual disabilities and are not capable of a great deal of necessarily personal insight. But I do think that from my own personal experience, in order to get through my trauma or my anxiety or my panic attacks, I have to be able to feel it. Now, obviously, that is not something that you can do all the time, right? Like if I have been traumatized and I'm trying to feel that pain, that's not going to work well. It may, in fact, re-traumatize me. At the same time, I have to be able to feel it at least a little bit and then back away and then feel it a little bit more and back away. And so that so that that's what mindfulness and a lot of these mindfulness-based stress reduction programs are about. I think that that same principle applies whether or not you can actually have insight into what why you're doing it or what you've what happened to you right like if we can take these individuals and use various mindfulness type training programs that would allow them to start to feel it and then allow them to back away. Maybe it's coloring, maybe like, you know, it's going to be very hands-on the types of interventions that we do for really little kids, like play-based therapy, you know, dramatizations, all that kind of stuff. You're what you're really trying to do is just allow the student or person to process it a little bit at a time in a way that doesn't overwhelm them and allow them to keep traumatizing themselves. Does that sort of explain or is that clear? That's kind of my understanding of how it works. Oh, it's perfectly clear to me <laughs> because I'm thinking that, you know, this is really not one size fits all, uh, that we really need to do some tailoring. And yes. The other sort of, you know, I feel really humbled, um, which is that we don't have all the answers, but 
it I mean it would make sense to work together and be inclusive yes. and realize that some of our solutions may not be the right ones. No. But but we won't know until we we try to test it out, which you know um, sometimes we have to do. But uh, just how important it is, you know, at at the very end that we work together on this, uh, and we don't lose hope, and we stay positive, and we look at the strength based uh, side of things, and so to create some balance and not be afraid to uh, modify society. Yes, uh, I, yes, very much, very well said. So I think I, 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 you've been talking for such a long time. I feel so bad, and and so maybe this might be a good place to so just say thank you so much for your presentation and for fielding all these different you know questions uh, and really sort of setting I think our next steps uh, into a slightly different direction but feasible uh, and just reminding us how important it is uh, to think about the whole person in context and not sort of um, uh, think about just the behaviors, uh, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for everyone for having me and for, and for listening to all of my thoughts and ideas. I really, really appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.